0: Well, thank you for coming um, tonight. My remarks um, will be um, will be an opportunity to just set the stage for our conversation, for um, which I think is the real focus for um, for the evening. Um, and I will do so. What I will would like to talk about is how I understand the work that I do. Um, thinking theologically about art for the service of art or in the service of art. Um, So I grew up I grew up in a Christian household um, and what's unusual isn't necessarily that I came to faith in Christ, but that I was converted to art. And I've spent (laughs) I grew up in Nebraska. There really wasn't any reason why I we didn't go to museums. Um, my father was interested in classical music and history, and and he enjoyed literature. But there was no real reason why um, their son would be interested in the visual arts. They didn't collect art. They didn't. We didn't interact with people that did. We grew up lower middle class, and I read um and un- as an undergraduate i read some art criticism and a critics writing about art just ignited my imagination and these reviews didn't even have reproductions in them i didn't even know what the critic was talking was writing about but the work but the the words the language was so compelling and it felt to me that there was so much at stake in the critics writing about art that it, it drew me in. And so I majored in art history. I then changed my major to art history, um, went to New York and studied with that critic. And I've never forgotten the importance of and the power of speaking and writing about art. And speaking and and writing responsibly about art. Much of our experience of art comes to us through language, comes to us through the media, comes through other ways than being confronted by a work of art. And so I'm very, very interested in um, in the words we use to talk about um, to talk about works of art. So what I do as an educator when I'm Teaching art history, like I'm doing, uh, showing you some images tonight. These are bad images. They aren't the works of art themselves. And what I'm trying to, will try to do is through language, try to create a space, an imaginative space where you might be able to, when you see the work, the work may be able to address you, to open up a space in in your imagination. And it just so happens that tomorrow night, you would have an opportunity to actually see the work of an artist that I've spent almost 20 years working with. And so how, I'm, how I'll am how i talk about um, the relationship of theology and art um, is I love Jesus and I love art. And I'm trying to figure out how that works together and fits together. And oftentimes it doesn't. And part of my interest in thinking theologically about art is thinking theologically about why I'm, I feel that my life has been shaped and formed by art. And, um, and so I'll just, I'll show you some images, talk to you a little bit about how I've been formed. Um, hopefully what it'll also do is provide a nice introduction to the work of Enrique Martinez Salaya, um, whose exhibition is at, um, the UAB Gallery and was a complete and utter happenstance. I'm a little jealous of the curator who put together the show because these paintings, they're small scale paintings. I have for 10 years wanted to do a small scale painting exhibition and she's done it. And so I went and saw the exhibition today. I gave a tour to uh, Sanford University art students and uh, it's a great space and the exhibition is quite wonderful. So I'm looking very much forward for any of you to be there uh, tomorrow um, to see the exhibition. Um, so one of the things that I'm interested in is in helping me understand art. And I am fascinated, I'm continually fascinated that human beings wake up in the morning and they go into a studio of some kind and they make art. Whether they smear smelly pigment on a of canvas and they do it all day long, every single day, or they use some other medium, they make art. And it amazes me that a human being does that. And it has something deeply theologically resonant about the integrity of human work and human agency and also the faith that's required in somehow in some way to continue to make work in which the response may not be positive, there may be no response. And the impact that the products of that studio space uh, will have may take place over time, years perhaps. And so what I'm interested in doing is mobilizing um, theological language and thinking theologically in order to understand what actually happens when I stand before a work of art. And so a lot of how I'm thinking about the work is about how I'm responding. As a human being being addressed by a painting or a, or a work of art and the impact that it has, the impact that it has on me. So this has a lot less to do with developing a Christian worldview in terms of how to deal with, how to deal with art. What's, what's virtuous, what's not virtuous, what Christians should look at or not look at. And more to do with how we understand the relationships that we have with works of art, whether they're paintings or films or poems or works of literature. What does it mean to have a relationship with a work of art? Uh, the work, my thinking was formed, uh, I spent 11 years as chief curator of this museum, uh, Philip Johnson Design Building at the University of Nebraska, called the Sheldon Museum of Art. It has a very strong collection of 19th and 20th century um, American painting and sculpture, and it's where I—it's um, also where I, uh, in the capacity that I met um, Enrique Martinez Celaya. Uh, this is a uh, an image of a painting that I've been very interested in lately. Um, it's by Paul Cezanne. It's called The Bather. It was painted in 1885. It's at the Museum of Modern Art. I'm fascinated by the fact that nobody stands in front of it and looks at it. Now it could be. It could be because Van Gogh's Starry Night's on the other side, and people will go over there, to tour, the tour, the tour headphones, you know, lead everybody over around the other side. But there's also something about the painting just being so clunky. It's clunky, it's awkward. For a man whose, the reputation was that he loved nature, and that he sat in front of a tree in the landscape, and observers said it would be 10 to 15 minutes between brushstrokes. Have you ever looked? I have. I don't know if they have ever looked at anything like that, with that intensity. And yet, the paintings that he produces are these kind of awkward, heavy, clunky paintings. A critic, hostile critic, said that he could paint bad breath. (laughs) And so, and so, I've been fascinated by this painting. I've been fascinated by. The poet Rilke's response to seeing Cézanne's paintings. Rilke was in Paris and he saw this retrospective exhibition, memorial retrospective exhibition of Cézanne's paintings. And he was fascinated by them. He didn't know how, didn't know how to respond to them. And he wrote letters to his wife, who happened to be an artist, a student of Rodin's. And he tried to explain to his wife what was going on with him. Like, why? Why am I interested in this artist's work? And he said, for, for a long time, nothing. And then one gets the right eyes. Like, what does that mean? What do the right eyes mean? And so I'm very much interested in thinking theologically about what those right eyes are. What does it mean to... Have a work of art address you in a particular way in which you see something for the first time. And for me, the importance is that relationship of standing in front of a painting or in front of a work of art and being addressed by it. That space of being addressed. Um, I'm also interested in the dichotomies and the tensions. So you have... Sotheby's auctioneer, Tobias Meyer bidding up, um, the last available, um, version of Edvard Munch's, The Scream, which sold for $129 million this evening at that evening. Um, at that time, the highest amount ever paid for a work of art at auction. And this photograph, I think about this photograph, I look at this photograph a lot, how vulnerable and fragile that that painting looks. That art is a fragile thing. That it's always, already on the verge of being misunderstood or ignored. And just the absurdity of smearing paint on a canvas, the absurdity of using materials to make something called art in a world that values efficiency, utility, usefulness, making an impact, in which it's hard to see that this artifact makes an impact in the world. And yet, Monk himself had this to say about his work, he said, I paint my soul's diary it's an effort to try to understand myself and to achieve understanding about the world, my search for truth. And I hope that the viewer in their search for truth and clarity and understanding might be helped by these paintings. That is a different way of thinking about work than what's happening here. And I'm, so I'm interested in, I'm interested in thinking theologically about this dichotomy, about a work that operates in a realm, in this um, high-stakes financial spectacle realm in which, after this auction took place, the blogosphere exploded with, "as a painting worth 125, $129 million. Look at this awful figure. This artist doesn't know how to draw. And yet, Munch saw these paintings as operating somehow and in some way as a religion. That he wanted the viewer to come reverently. Not because the works were somehow um, blessed by God, but that there was something sacred about the attempt, the common covenantal attempt of two human beings trying trying to understand the world. I've thought a lot also about this particular painting by Paul Cezanne. You can see how clunky and heavy um, Cézanne's paintings are. So Henri Matisse, before Matisse was Matisse, um, saw this painting at a dealer's boutique, Ambrose Vollard, and uh, wanted to buy it, but he couldn't afford it. So in consultation with his wife, his wife sold one of her, or pawned one of her heirloom pieces of jewelry, and they bought this painting. And 30, 35 years later, after Matisse had become Matisse, he was planning to gift it to a museum in Paris. It's in the permanent collection of the Petit Palais now. And he felt obligated to write the curator a note about this painting. He said, I want you to know about this painting. He said, this painting has been a constant source of support for me throughout my life. When I wavered, and thought that I was off base. I looked at this painting, and I thought to myself, if, if Cezanne is right, and I think he might be right, then maybe I'm right. He said, it has been the source of faith and perseverance. His words, faith and perseverance. For me and my artist, artistic life. One of Matisse's biographers said it was more than that. It served as an icon for the whole family. The whole family, wife and children, saw this painting somehow and in some way as an icon for the sacrifice that they had made. So I'm interested in thinking theologically about how to account for that. How does a person who does not, who who is not a Christian, think about his work in a context of faith, and perseverance. So I'll just show you some images, talk to you a little bit about my experience with this artist Enrique Martina Celaya um, and, I, and how, I've, how I've lived my life, not just as an art historian, as a critic and a curator, but also as a Christian in and through his work in which I'm hard-pressed, I'm hard-pressed, how would I put it? I think my, whatever Christian formation I've undergone over the last 20 years has had much to do with my experience with his work. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know how and in what way, but I have to um, I have to admit that um, that my spiritual development has been shaped by this work. So this is a painting called Gethsemane. Um, it's a rather large painting. Um, And I remember having a conversation with him about this painting, thinking that perhaps he had read the Gospel accounts. I said, I haven't read the Gospel accounts. He said, what I know of Gethsemane is that there was, that it felt like that was a moment of decision and that this painting seemed to be a moment of decision. And so much of Martina Solai's work, and you'll see it tomorrow night, um, focuses on easily recognizable, very familiar images figures in the landscape, often adolescent figures in the landscape, the, the boys and girls leaving childhood. The innocence of childhood is disappearing, and yet they're not adults yet. They're in this odd kind of middle ground. So it's the human being in process, in journey, um, landscapes, seascapes, boats, trees. Flames—very familiar imagery—and yet the images aren't really telling narratives necessarily, or that there's stories attached to them. They're moments, instances that unlock or encourage us um, um, to think about, think about our experience, that the work. That the work addresses how we live our lives. And we very rarely live our lives in the present. We live it in the past or the future. We live it out of nostalgia in the past or regret through memory. We live in aspiration and hope or fear of the future. I mean, if you're like me, you sit you hear some guy drone on and on and you're thinking about your bad day at work or you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. But what Martinez-Solaya's work does, and I think in general what art does, is make you present by focusing attention on the now. You know, as... St. Paul writes, today is the day of salvation, now. And the painting does that. And I tell my students, particularly when we go see the bather uh, at MoMA, I tell them that painting was painted in 1885. Think about all the pairs of eyes that have seen that painting, that have been addressed by that painting. And for a particular moment, it'll only be your eyes. And that the, that present moment, and so I'm interested thinking theologically about what does that mean? How does a painting how does a painting do that? How does a painting make us aware of the present in a particular kind of way? And what is interesting about Martina Salaya's work, his work is self-consciously interested in the past, interested in a certain reality that we live our lives really between our ears. We live it in through childhood, we live it through the ch- our children, we live it through what's often not happening in front of us. And so for him, these paintings are means to bring to the present our experiences. And even though he was a, um, even though he was exiled, his family was exiled um, from Cuba, his work isn't about his Cuban experience. The work comes out of a certain sense of exile and regret and desire for a home. But it's not about his, it's about yours. (laughs) When you stand in front of the work, it's about your homelessness, your wandering, your yearning, your desire for someplace else. Uh, this is the first project that he and I did in 2003 uh, together. It's a series of 23 paintings, a, a cycle that he um, that he called the October Cycle. This was at the Sheldon Museum. Um, I was interested in these paintings as a kind of a there was a liturgical or kind of a sacramental component to them. Uh, what is interesting about Martina Salaya also is that he's an atheist, um, and yet there is a sense that art does something more. Art attests to a value and a significance that, that is, if not spiritual, something other than material. Ethical, perhaps. Certain responsibility for the other. There's another project that we did at, the, at, um, at my museum sculptural environment with photography. Um, this is an exhibition that I curated of his work at the Museum of Biblical Art in New York, uh, focusing on the figure in the landscape as a motif that came out of his being deeply shaped by Western literature, Dostoevsky, Melville, Tolstoy. Yet all of those authors and others, Hermann Hesse, Boris Pasternak, um, those writers were shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so I was interested in, I was interested in the figure in the landscape as actually a a scriptural narrative motif. Adam and Eve, figures in the landscape. Abraham, or Cain, the wanderer. Um Abraham being called out of the land of the Chaldees, the figure in the landscape, Jesus of Nazareth, the figure in the landscape on the way from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and so thinking through um, what understanding of us of of the narratives the scriptural narratives could help us understand the work, not to help us polish a certain Christian worldview, but to actually help us understand some deeper resonances of the painting itself or the, uh, the work itself. And so for me, I'm interested in mobilizing um, theology in order to help us understand the art that we're looking at rather than using art as an occasion to strengthen the theology. Uh, at the time of um, the exhibition at the, muse- at the Museum of Biblical Art, which was in the fall of 2010, um, Martina Celaya presented four large scale paintings at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine at the same time. So there were four paintings, 15 feet by 11 feet. Um, this is one um, such painting. One of the things that was interesting about Martina Celaya's desire to have these paintings in this cathedral wasn't because he was thinking about his work in spiritual terms. He was thinking about testing his work. So there's a certain sense in which how he talks about his work from a philosophical standpoint or from an ethical standpoint could feel like it was cant or decorative or jargon language in an art gallery space in which people... Went into that space, put their art hat on, left their worries outside the gallery space, go into the gallery space and look at art. What he was interested in is what would happen, how would my paintings interact with people who didn't, who weren't going in for art, but were going in because they were Tired of the noise and the stimulation of the city and needed to be quiet because their marriage is falling apart. They needed a place to pray, or they were they were desperately trying to find a place where they could think about how they were going to make it the next day. When the stakes of one's life are that high. Now what do the paintings do? Do the paintings offer anything? What's an interesting um, story about this exhibition, about this presentation, um, Martina Slay had a handful of collectors fly in. So there were a couple from Berlin, one from Paris, one from London coming in to see these, uh, this exhibition and the um, cathedral um, had made, you know, they said, please you can come in, you can do a little, you know, please come in and, and look at the, the work. They didn't do a reception. Uh so we were gonna go over to meet at the cathedral to see the work with these collectors and then go over to the Museum of Biblical Art. So we received a phone call. I received a phone call from uh from the pastor at the cathedral and said, Everything's okay, don't worry about it. I mean but there's gonna there's a memorial service taking place at the time. So just don't be freaked out by it. So we went in and there was a memorial service. You could smell incense? The organ was going. And so these collectors coming in to see art were going in for memorial service. And that added to how they were looking at these paintings. Um, here's, these are three of the paintings in process at a studio in Miami. This is one of the paintings, finished. Um, interesting aspect in terms of like how the work operates in the context of the studio space, how it operates in an art space, how it operates in in the cathedral, as part of the as part of the liturgical um, uh, furniture of the building. And then here are three works that he's doing now. Uh, he's painting for an exhibition at, um, I think he has one of his dealers in London, uh, that'll open in, in a couple months. And then I'll conclude my remarks by just giving you an example of the life I've lived with the work. So this is a very special painting to me. This is a painting entitled The Orchard. Uh, it's a, appears to be an apple orchard, uh, burnt. Uh, burnt twigs, uh, flooded. But when I see this painting, I don't just see this. What I see is the painting on view at the Museum of Biblical Art. But also, I see it as another version. This is what I see it. This is Martina Solaya's Delray Beach studio before he moved his studio into Miami. And It is a German shepherd with an iceberg. And that little girl that's standing in front of it's my daughter. And that painting doesn't exist in that stage anymore. And neither does my daughter. (laughs) Doesn't exist in that stage anymore. And I look at and think about this photograph a lot because it reminds me of how my family has been implicated in my calling or my passion for art and how art has shaped their lives by just um, living life with their father. Uh, and just as this painting has changed, my daughter has changed. And my daughter's actually a student at King's College, where I teach in New York. Um, and when Martina Salai had an exhibition in, uh, with his New York City dealer in the fall, one of the assignments I gave my students was to review. Uh, the exhibition, so my daughter got to review Uncle Enrique's exhibition. And the aspect of the close proximity of living with an artist over time is something I think that probably the most urgent... Theological need for me to think through what it means for me to share my life with this artist and to have his work shape and mold me and not just me, but my family as well. That is inextricably a part of my experience of, um, of the work. So my, my interest, how I've begun to think about, um, how I've begun to write about art and to talk about art, um, has much to do with beginning with that personal component from com- I'm it's I think it's easy to forget we th- for arts professionals we assume we can it's easy to assume that an artist makes work for art historians and curators and critics but an artist makes work for a person with a heart <laughs> that longs that suffers that experiences joy it's that it's that person that munk hoped would see his paintings and somehow be helped by them. And so for me, the 25 years I've spent studying and reading and doing the um, doing all of the professional work has been a means for me to reconnect with me as a suffering, desperate, hopeful human being. That is addressed by a painting, or a sculpture, or an installation, or a work of art made by another human being, who finds him or herself in the same boat of life. So, those are my thoughts, and hopefully that'll get us going. We'll be able to have a nice conversation. Um, So, all right.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Dan. it's my pleasure to introduce uh, two new people here uh, to the stage. Um, first of all, uh, S- Stephen Watson, who's an assistant professor of art and design at Stanford University um, and also a practicing artist. Um, and you've been on uh, faculty there at Stanford for a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. Um, and Horace Ballard, who's the curator of education. Is there like a full title with all? a bunch of people's names. I feel like the museum has like really long titles. Is it just Curator of Education? It is just okay, Curator. OK, Curator of Education. I got it right. <laughs> and Horace is new to, that's at the BMA, Birmingham Museum of Art, and Horace is uh, new to the museum since when? August you came yes, Okay. Um, and I'm really just going to let you three mostly talk. I'll sort of intervene and, and moderate here. Um, but they're bigger visual arts experts than I am. Um, but maybe I'll just kick us off. Dan, I, you know, I read the book, and I emailed you earlier today and said, wow, this is so good. I have to read it again a second time to put my mind around it. But the thing I think I really liked about it, resonated with it, was just sort of the the understanding of what I always call theology of the cross, understanding of um, versus one of glory. And one thing you brought up here earlier today is talking about a a painting's weakness or vulnerability. And that picture of Monk's uh, painting being uh, auctioned at Sotheby's, on the one hand, you see like this auctioneer in the tuxedo, and it's really an image of strength. And here, on the, on the other hand, is the, the painting, which the phrase you use often is, um, smelly pigments smeared across scraps of canvas being vulnerable there in the room. Can you extrapolate on this idea of um, a painting's vulnerability
0: Mm. I, mean, I think there's. Can you hear? It, yeah. um, a work, a visual work of art, it seems to me, addresses, it addresses your, an organ that is predicated upon quick judgments. So, you know, our vision keeps us from getting run over by a cab. It keeps us, it protects us, it helps us find out where the food is located or where the attractive people are that we want to speak to, or, you know, it helps us make those judgments about where we're going to be in the next few minutes, where are we going to go, Um, where are we going to go spend the next 30 minutes, who are we going to talk to? And so often in a museum context or a gallery context, we see a work of art, and we want to conduct ourselves like we're, look, like we're waiting for traffic. Or we're, so we say, oh, this is what it is, and then we move on. And you see it, you, or you experience it yourself. You go to a gallery or museum, and you kind of walk through. I think the Getty did a, did a study, and I think the average amount of time a person stands before a work of art is... Like 20 seconds or 50 seconds or something like that. Um, and yet, an artist makes a work of art not to be glanced at, but somehow and in some way to climb inside you or to stick to you in some way. Um, and so it's there, like that, that Cezanne bather is there, but it doesn't get looked at, it gets people move around it. Um, one person out of a dozen may, it may attract their attention. And so I've always, I've begun to think about art not as the sistine ceiling, this thing that you look at and you have these transcendent moments where you fall to the ground, because nobody has those. My wife and I were at the Louvre this summer, I was giving some lectures in Paris and we went to the Louvre and looked at the Mona Lisa. People came you know, they wanted to come to get a transformative experience because that's what they thought they were going to get and they just saw this little painting. And what, what, now what? And so, like this idea that there's a, that there's vulnerability, that, Here's the, that the, right, exactly, that's, that there need, that a work, um, that somehow and in some way needs help. Some, in some kind of help, it needs somebody to listen. It needs somebody not just to see, but to listen to it, to stop, to hold on, to wait. Um, I, I came across, it was an essay in, uh, uh, that Hilton Als wrote about Robert Gober um, at his retrospective exhibition at MoMA. And the artist Charles Ray was asked about Robert Gober's work. What does it mean? And Charles Ray responds, with, well, I don't know what it means. But it says, come here, come closer. And then come back again tomorrow. And I like that a lot. There's just that sense that it grows on you. But uh, for me as an educator or a curator or whatever, the, the challenge is to try to find ways that the potential for a work of art to grow on somebody. Be able to get them, get, create a context in which that painting that's there or that work of art that's there can be allowed that because there's so few experiences that we have in society that in our cultural life that invite that. It's, there are these counterintuitive artifacts that ask us to behave so differently in the world than how we do it. We're the ones in control. You go and we make decisions about where, what we're doing, and we're interpreting and we're sorting. What happens if you allow that artifact to actually have the agency, and, and we then are receptive and we allow it to climb inside us um, in some way? So those are that's how I've uh, begun to think about it, and just trying to figure out ways for for people. Who are not, for whom art isn't self-evident—that it's not something that oh yeah everybody should take it seriously—that it's a strange, odd thing—and then to find ways to address it in a way that can open it up and make it, make it at least if not to make it, to make the certain challenges of what it means to act as a human being by making works of art. Um, So that's how that's how I've. Just a different kind of strategy to kind of turn things around rather than the artist with the capital A or the making works of art that are transformative, but those works of art that are just wanting to address somebody.
1: I
2: I did, and I, I just want to say thank you. And in in the book, Who's Afraid of Modern Art, and also in your introduction, you spoke so eloquently and wrote so cogently in the book about these two ideas that are really interesting to me um, that I think, or at least I'm I'm sensing the the more I hear you speak, a connection, I think, with um, Salaya's work. And that's the idea of how we encounter a work of art Mm -hmm. and whether that encounter is, say, mediated through words first Um, or an ad in the newspaper, something we hear on public radio, you gotta see this, so we, so we go. And even that thin valence is itself a veil that mm-hmm. we cross to actually see the work. And the idea of epiphany, and in thinking about liturgical epiphanies, right? Or even the sense in modernism, James Joyce, the beautiful woman that's in nature, that he sees when he can't sleep from his studies, right? and portrait of the artist as a young man, and it changes his life. He's like, I can no longer be a doctor. right? I can no longer be an academic. I need to be an artist. And I'm wondering about that idea, encounter, and epiphany, and they Mm. assume to me that perhaps what you suggest is that that space where the spirit or the theological can intersect. Mm. That moment in which in order for it to be an epiphany, the work has to approach you and has to come. You have to be open to it. It almost takes your breath away by the alacrity with which you want mm. to give it, to go. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about those those ideas because I think they're so key. Um, I see some of my wonderful docents who are who are here at the museum, who at the BMA are be very central and also the front line for how we think about mm-hmm. interpretation um, and with works of art. They see thousands upon thousands yeah. in a year, and I see maybe a hundred or yeah. And so thinking about the encounter mm-hmm. of the work, and if we allow
0: it, the epiphany that helps us live with it mm. much later. Yeah, much of my thinking has been, has been, shaped by museum experience and speaking, standing in front of, say, uh, put together the Martina Salaya show, and the audience can be my curatorial colleagues, the audience can be art students, the audience can be the partners in the law firm who gave money to to put the show on and they're there and the junior partners are there because I have to be there and they're not really all that (laughs) interested. So how do you at that moment, like I have a room that I have to try to move through the space and get them compelled in some way. So what do I say in front of a work of art? Mm -hmm. And what do I say that can perhaps do something that can open up something for them? Um, I remember I was at a conference Some years ago, a curator at the Kimball Museum in Dallas said, the problem with with didactic wall labels in museums is that people read them. (laughs) And there's there's that sense that uh, that we, so a museum, you go and you get education. So you go and you read the labels. And then the work of art is kind of like the visual illustration of the label. Oh, okay. All right. And so I've, all, I've always been trying to figure out a way to use language in a sense that could drive people to the work and that would allow that experience. So what was, what people could get online and the museum website, they could get the art historical information. But there, the, the search to find something that can draw someone's attention to something else, that that work then they go away thinking about that experience Is that ineffable thing that I've been been chasing, or and it has to do with it would have to do in some ways with what um, uh, with who the audience is. I've found that one experience that I've had that I would be with, say, an event. I'd be training the docents, and the docents would be there with their husbands or something, and the husbands are just not interested in being there, and they're there, and they're... And, but, and they'll, make no, they'll make no bones about the fact they don't really want to be there, and they're not really interested in art. But oftentimes, if... Often that is just because they don't, they don't think they've read enough, or that they're not an expert, and that, but they're not really looking. And if they're freed to look... Oftentimes those men who don't say that they're interested in art are kind of in the ballpark emotionally of what's happening. If you allow them to be able to, to actually look at the work and to say a few things about how they're responding to it, they're, they're pretty close. And so I've as I've as I've gotten older and spent more time thinking about art, I've wanted very much to make sure that the art historical work that I do, the intellectual work that I do, is always in the service of trying to emphasize the experience, trying to affirm the experience, trying to deepen the experience rather than to avoid the the experience and to bring people in contact with that potential for epiphany where there's a certain where the work is addressing them at the moment, who they are not just as docents or as Art people, but as human beings who have a family to go back to, who are worried about their elderly parents, that are dealing with the future. Like, if a painting doesn't, if a work of art doesn't deal with that, then a work of art really isn't a work of art. It seems to me that that's how, that that's kind of how I'm, how I want to be able to open that, open that space up for that. Potentially, may not happen then, as you know, it could be in the future. Um, and I felt. With my experience of reading the, the, those critics' words as an undergrad, it was just the potential that any work of art could be that way. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that it was his review of Andy Warhol's work or Joseph Boy's work that was so compelling for me to learn more about Boyce or Warhol. It was the potential that I could go into a gallery space or a museum and be... Like as intellectually and emotionally challenged and on edge as those words seem to communicate that the critic was. And so I've also then been wanting to say, well, you know, I I talk about Cezanne's The Bather or Munch's The Scream or Martina Celaya's work, but in many ways it's a placeholder for any work of art. You can go to the neighborhood gallery and... The potential is there to be to be addressed by by a work of art. And that for me, I think, is I think you're absolutely right in terms of that aspect of of the of the epiphany of creating that space um, for that.
3: I don't know if is my mic working? I don't know. The lights not on. Hello. Hey. Um so I was I was giving a talk on Friday night. And somebody asked me a question, and I couldn't answer it. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to ask Dan when I sit with him, because he's going to know. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is carried over from a couple days' worth. But um, And it, I think it has to do with uh, Horace's question, too, about experience. Can you tell me the difference? I, I thought of it with the concave stuff in Who's Afraid of Modern Art. Can you tell me the difference between uh, faith and hope uh, and escapism? Can you tell me a little like, I, I think it might tie into the presence thing that you talked about during yeah. your talk but escapism is usually construed as something yeah. bad And but as Christians we like the whole faith and hope thing. Can you tell me the, the difference yeah. between those two things?
0: I wrote um, I wrote a reflection on Kincaid um, I was blogging for Pathios um, many of these essays in this book uh, the most recent one come out of Occasional blog posts that I wrote. I was writing once a week, and I was reflecting on Thomas Kincaid, and his—he had died not that long um, before I wrote, and his desire to make art before the fall. I found to be tragic, in a sense, that there was—that there was a a sense that he was not addressing the reality that we are east of Eden. That they're actually angels guarding the garden. We can't go back. And so how we are dealt with by God and how we understand who we are as human beings has to take place outside of Eden. Which means that's where hope It's out of the darkness, out out of the recognition of our fallenness or our brokenness or the fragility. And I reflected on Kincaid wishing that a man who had such a tragic life, who struggled with addiction, who struggled with all of those things that Edvard Munch struggled with, So comparing Kincaid with Munch, both men struggling with their brokenness on a daily basis. One man, Edvard Munch, goes into the studio and works through that. And his work is the process by which he addresses it, deals with it, and is making work that comes out of it. And another man who makes images after image after image that has no relation to what he was undergoing and dealing with as a human being, Um, seemed like, in some ways, the work killed him. (laughs) That there wasn't a means. I mean, Munk was... In some ways, Munk stayed alive by making the paintings that he painted. So he struggled with mental illness, he struggled with addiction, all those sorts of things. He's, at the end, towards the end of his life, he makes paintings. He can't sleep at night. And he's up wandering his house in the middle of the night. And so he starts making these paintings. He calls them guardians, they're full length portraits of his friends and people that are close to him. And some of the people that sat for him were freaked out by them. I said, "Monk has painted my soul and he's hung it on a nail. <laughs> that They captured him. But he, he painted these paintings and then he set them out around his house so that when he wandered around in the middle of the night, he had his friends. And I think about that And I think about the fragility and those paintings and the function, their function. And then I think about Kincaid's images on mugs and t-shirts and all of those things that don't really come out of, that come out of his, come out of that suffering. So there's a certain, that kind of escapism. However, I also have to grant that, that people have had, people have relationships with those works as, as, and care about them in many different ways um, that have to be um, that have to be dealt with that have to be acknowledged. Um, and so for me it wasn't you know a kind of elitist high culture, low culture. It was just a human being, two human beings who were making images. One was doing it through the recognition of brokenness and pain, and that work was helping him cope. And then another man who was making images that were not doing that. They could be whatever they. They do all kinds of other things, but they they really they weren't coming out of that um, coming out of that pain and suffering. So that's how I've that's how I was thinking about it, and that's how I've tried to for people who for people audiences that are put off by the kind of awkwardness and the and the. Um, the strangeness of certain aesthetic traditions in modern art to emphasize the aspect that it's wor- working through um, the pain and the suffering, um, which is, I think, unique to making art under the conditions of modernity. That doesn't happen in the Renaissance. You know, Giotto and Masaccio and Raphael have spiritual crises, but they don't go into the studio to... Address them. They go into the studio because someone has paid them to make an altarpiece, and somebody has said, "Oh yeah, and by the way, my wife and I need to be seated at the cross, kneeling at the cross, and you need to use gold leaf, and you need to do, you know." And so, that's that's what the what the Renaissance painter is doing. But under the conditions of modernity, what are often seen as the loss of God or the death of God or the or you know the bemoan the, moan, the the loss of the church as the patrons of the arts. There's also a certain scope of freedom in which the artist goes into the studio then to make work, and what the artist does is making work out of his or her search for order and truth. So in some ways, instead of illustrating theology, the modern artist is doing it, doing the, the Augustinian thing. Who am I? How did I get here? Where am I going? Um, and that's a deep theological com- aspect. Um, those are deep theological questions um, that are just rotating theology from content to structure, for instance.
2: As you were speaking, I was thinking about. Um One of my favorite moments um, from the New Testament, which is Paul on the way to Damascus, and that recognition, that light, that just knocks him off his horse, right? Legitimately knocks him off his high horse onto the ground. And he has to struggle. He has to find himself. He has to regain a sense of composure in and of his own self. Mm to then be able to go to the same people he had previously persecuted and to find some Mm. sort of community. And I say all that to say, as, as you were speaking, one of the things that's hardest for me at the museum is the sense of knowing how I came to the visual arts and knowing that it was a sense of after years being confronted, confronted, mm. confronted, and doing all the other arts, and um, and finally standing very kind of um, interestingly in front of a Rothko that I did not know was there at mm. my at my university gallery and the weeping. Mm. Um, I just was not prepared to see all that cadmium red. Mm. All Um, And it was just like, oh, my goodness. Um, And so as you were talking about labels and as we were talking about that space for experience and the working through of things, it is a very firm belief of mine from nothing solely or so solidly built as only experience that it really is close-looking space, and constructing moments where people can bring their full selves. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they might get it, sometimes they might not. It's Mm -hmm. okay, it's Mm -hmm. okay. As long as there's respect for the object and that person leaves the museum feeling respected. Mm -hmm. On the other sense, you know, we we have a wonderful collection at the the Birmingham Museum of Art and we have one of, I think, the rarest things of any museum. Um, Which is a world class African collection, a world class Native American collection, a world class Asian collection, and a world class Mesoamerican collection. All of them are fantastic. And they are held by two people, right, who, who hold both of them. And there are, of course, in our contemporary moment, and even before when those objects were collected, a lot of questions and a lot of misgivings about the kind of history, the kind of teaching practice, the kind of information that is foundational to approaching a work of art. The kind of intellectual knowledge or facts that allow that work to be given both its form and its proper function. And one of the difficulties I find, and I wonder kind of not only your experience as a curator and as a museum professional, but as an artist and as a teacher, you know, in that balance between experience and knowledge, knowing that, I think, for those of us who were raised in the church, those things kind of come together, and we might not be able to pull them apart. For those of us who might have come to a spiritual or theological understanding of it later in life, Those things are very separate for some of us and very distinct and yet incredibly powerful. And so wondering how how does one teach in collections that are incredibly various and one wants to do due diligence and yet (coughs) for the Rothko, yes, bam, it's there if you get it, great if not. But for the West African Nkisi doll, doll, yeah. right, that's got incredible found objects and a real spiritual sense of the iron that's in it, is it okay if I leave my group or my students and they go, that's cool? Or is it like, no, you need to understand that iron is a conception in which it's a, you know? It's like, <laughs> at one point,
0: can we trust knowledge and the experience? Yeah. No, I think about this a lot because I can... You know, it's one thing for me, you know, I'll tell my students it's about experience. But on the other hand, I'll also say this is 25 years of, of living with it. There's a point where you can say you can say it's experience as a result of the kind of intellectual work, mm. or thinking about it in terms of, of a, any kind of cultural practice that's worth learning, it takes effort, some kind of effort, whether it's you know, learning how to dance. Um, C.S. Lewis even writes about it in terms of the liturgy, that it's like dancing, you don't really know the steps, but once you learn the steps, then it flows, and you're able to, But there has to be enough patience to be able to learn those steps, which is a little bit of the work, which is a little bit of the effort, maybe the training of you know, the historical or the theoretical, or to know, you know, a number of years ago when um paintings got in the crosshairs of of the Catholic League and in, in New York, this notion of dung was a elephant dung was a was a uh, a material of desecration What well, absolutely wasn't a material of desecration but you wouldn't know that you wouldn't know that unless you knew something about the cultural context of the materials that Ophelia was using and why he was using those and so there is that that aspect of of recognizing that um, that there's a line it's not just gazing up at the clouds and saying oh I see a doggy, yeah. you know a puppy and but there is something in which there's a there's a there's a mutual there's a mutual relationship maybe that covenant that monk is thinking about that there's a that I'm making work for this purpose and the viewer is approaching it for this purpose and there's a confluence um, and for me it's a you know I know you, I'm sure you have the same kind of the same challenge of there's a whole range of, if I'm standing in front of a work of art, there's a whole range of things I could say, like tomorrow night, I, there's a whole range of things I could say about Martina Salaya. His personal life, his how he makes paintings, what he's thinking about, all of those things. I have to make certain judgments about what I say, the extra visual things, the background, the theoretical things, I have to make certain choices about what I, about those things that I say that will be able to not just give you information about the artist, but can help you get at that point to learn to dance with him. So then it becomes, then you see or it can feel the work. So that iron becomes not just some, once you learn some aspect of what it does, then, it's, then it begins to, then you begin to move with it or it begins to be, <coughs> expressive in a different way so i i because it's a kind of a narrow path that i walk on because i'm emphasizing experience the presumption is that history and theory and philosophy and all those things don't really matter yet they matter but how they what their relationship is to deepening the experience in some way or to be able to to be able then to come at it at a certain point so that you're able to turn the corner and you see that Rothko or you see that piece now that opens up to you because you've learned certain aspects of, of, um, of, of, of history and culture which are now more familiar and you, the materials then are you're ready for it. You're ready to experience what it is that that, that red You're, you're, you're ready for it at some point. Like, for Rilke, you get the right eyes. So you can get the, you can get the, you can get the knowledge. You can get the head knowledge. And then at some point, you hope that that comes together where then the, like, the heart's opened up. where the eyes open (laughs) up. I don't know what I said either. Really. I do not know. I do not know the voice of God. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. God, I mean, just shut up and let somebody else talk.
3: Uh, the, for a long time, nothing, then one gets the right eyes. That thing you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Celia's work, did you have the right eyes quickly, or was it a slow thing? Was it love at first sight, or did it take a while?
0: I'm still, like 20 years in, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, and that's part of, that's what I've, that's what I've really enjoyed about, enjoy. That's really what I, what drives me about art. I'm still trying to figure out what it is. What is art? I started studying art because I didn't know what it was. I still don't know really what it is. But I feel like along the way that I've lived with it and experienced it. Um, And with, there's a point in knowing, you know, certain curators are really interested in working with a lot of different artists. I really am interested in, like, working on one. (laughs) Or working on, just like, their life. And to see, like, any new body of work. I mean, I showed you the photograph of these three portraits uh, that Martina Salai is working on. And I walked into the studio, saw them, and he said, that one is a portrait of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but you don't need to know that. That portrait is a portrait of Freddie Mercury, lead singer of Queen, but, but you don't need to know that. And I'm like, what does that mean? You don't need to know that. And it just made, like, that, that, those three paintings just forced me to go back 25 years in his work, like rethinking how he understood portraiture and understood, and that is so exciting for me. Just like, now the guard, the decks have been shuffled again. And I felt, I feel like, I feel like the work, they're tips of an iceberg and that there's something else underneath. Like this incredible thing underneath that I'm trying to, to get at. Um, and so that's, how so it's just I don't quite it, it keeps eluding my grasp and what's interesting also about it is that you know, I write about his work and some and it's easy you know you fall in love with your stories I fall in love with my interpretations I fall in love with like it's it's my take on his work that I've fallen in love with and I need the work to like knock me out of it that it's like oh wait a second no no no, that essay that you wrote, fine at that period, but something else is going on now, and so you need to look at this work. You need to look at me again. You need to think about me in relationship to this other, to this other work. And so I, I'm forced to kind of hold with lighter fingers my story about his work, which I find so fascinating um, and so interesting. Um, the more I know him the more mysterious he becomes and the more mysterious the work um, becomes which is an interesting it's an interesting um, phenomenon
3: well, i like that theologically too that it's not just with the christian faith you suddenly see it and that's it you've arrived
0: right
3: so even even in faith we're all still we we've, we've seen the light and yet we still it still unfolds itself yeah to us throughout life yeah, yeah.
1: well um we're running low on time. Any one last thought, Dan? About
0: it? I've already said enough. <laughs> what do you have to say to the
1: church? I mean, I think yeah. right now, uh, art and theology is a little bit of a hot topic. Um, what's your opinion on that? In terms of the, uh, I'm for it. For it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there are probably places where it's what's happening might not be. Appropriate. I mean, well, so okay. greater or lesser Okay, so,
0: so I'll have so some reformed churches that I've spoken at, they want to incorporate art or they want to incorporate art in their in the church but they're going to presuppose that it means one thing and that like hang paintings up or put works of art in the in the exhibition, in the in the worship space, and it can mean a whole host of other things. Um, and I had I remember giving suggestion, giving some suggestions to an elders board. Like have some artists come, have artists in your congregation come to the church, walk around the grounds, and get their sense of how it feels and looks aesthetically, because the artists are the artists then will, whose lives are dependent upon making finer and finer visual aesthetic distinctions, are picking up on things that the congregants are already picking up on, but they're not, the congregants aren't aware of. You know, they're getting ready to church and they're walking, they're walking up to the uh, to the door, there's, you know, they're experiencing aesthetically. The aesthetic work is already happening as they're being prepared, as they're going into the into the service. And maybe what it takes is an artist to say, why don't you have a fresh bouquet of flowers there? Or clean out that little area where you think nobody notices. Everybody notices the little junk pile. And it creates an a, kind of an aesthetic disconnect. Clean that like clean that behind. out. But you have an artist. What's that? Put <laughs> <laughs> it behind. But it often... I mean, then an artist isn't just about, like, making a painting for the space. They're actually using their senses, and how they look at the world. And they're helping make that space operate in a, in a, uh, uh, a visually, aesthetically receptive space. And so just trying to, trying to help, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to create a congregation of art lovers. And I'll often talk to, to groups that don't have really in, any interest in art, but I will use my experience as an art person as a way to help them think about other aspects of vocation or you know, other, other practices without any pressure of having to convert people to art or that it's, they'll be better Christians or better educated human beings if they knew something about art. But that something about art can help them understand something else about vocation or something else about aspect of the world that they do have a connection, that they do have a connection. Uh,
1: Well, thanks so much for being our guests tonight. Dan and Stephen and Horace, thank you so much for being our panelists. Can we give them a (laughs) big thank you?